0: Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio with host Jerry Prokopovich. Our program covers all aspects of Civil War history, from the battlefields to the home fronts, and features guest experts, plus insights. Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio with host Jerry Prokopovich.
1: When historians look back at the early 21st century to analyze how the lost cause narrative was finally supplanted by more scholarly and accurate interpretations, I think they will focus on two events in the summer of 2015 as turning points in the struggle. One was the infamous Charleston Massacre that exposed the undeniable connection between white supremacy and Confederate symbology. The other, was a viral YouTube video called Was the Civil War About Slavery? by a U.S. Army colonel who was head of the History Department at West Point. The maker of that video, retired Brigadier General Ty Sedgeley, went on to tell his personal story in the bestseller Robert E. Lee and Me, A Southerner's Reckoning with the Myth of the Lost Cause. We'll talk with the author tonight on Civil War Talk Radio.
0: o-w-i-c-z-g at e-c-u-dot-e-d-u. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio.
1: And welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, coming to you from the rainy and dreary confines of the Brewster Building on the campus of East Carolina University, on the, uh, almost last Wednesday of June 2023, but as always not speaking for East Carolina University or anybody else, just myself and my guest will do the same as always the rule here. Uh, it is the last show of the 2022-2023 academic year and Civil War talk radio season, season number 19. It was not the plan to do more than 600 episodes when this started in 2004, but it has been a lot of fun and looking forward to Season 20 coming up uh, at the end of August. This uh, past week, uh, if you had a chance to listen, you heard some segments that were uh, recorded at Gettysburg College's Civil War Institute, which I attended last week. And What a great conference it was. If you have any opportunity to go next year, it's always in June. Go to the Civil War uh, Institute website. Actually, go to the Gettysburg College website and that'll have a link to the uh, the Institute. That's where you want to go. So many interesting speakers and interesting battlefield tour opportunities. I didn't get to do as much touring this time because I was speaking on the last day of the conference and Kept updating my talk as people said things that were relevant and interesting. Uh, But got to meet a lot of people. uh, Had the first sighting in the wild of a Civil War talk radio t-shirt being worn by someone other than a family member. That was uh, great. And I will say the highlight for me of the whole week was when I did give my talk, uh, Pete Carmichael, the director there, and an old friend uh, was introducing me. And he said, and, uh, Jerry teaches at Eastern Carolina university and from a dozen, maybe two dozen people came, uh, a loud sound of disapproval. No, no. Uh, that meant there were that many people in the audience that our list who were listeners, uh, who knew that this is East Carolina university and we don't take it lightly when people get the name wrong. Uh, and, and, uh, I did not put Pete up to doing that. It he, he was an honest mistake, and we had a, a laugh about it afterwards. But I was so uh, pleased to see the uh, support from those of you who were there who were listeners. And I know uh, the rest of you who were home, if you'd been there, would have joined in uh, uh, correcting our, our introduction. If you can't go for the uh, for next year's Civil War Institute conference, but can get to Gettysburg any other time, I, I strongly recommend that. The place seems to be on an upswing. Uh, I recorded a segment that you heard last week at the uh, Children of 1863, uh, not really museum, Adventure Center doesn't sound quite right, a place for kids to learn about history, where they can touch the exhibits, where they can play with things aimed at 5- to 12-year-olds, I would say. Uh, really an interesting place and, and uh, much better than another ghost tour storefront on Baltimore Street. Uh, there's the new uh, the Seminary Ridge Museum. Uh, the director there was was our guest here a few years ago when that opened. And now there's the new Adams County Museum that just opened uh, this year. There's the work going on in a little roundtop the Park Service is doing. There's just a general sense of, of, of dynamic progress. Uh, Definitely worth going if you get a chance. Uh, I took the opportunity after the conference to go visit a few sites uh, once my speaking duties were over and and, uh, followed up the advice of the students that were on last week's program who did the Culp's Hill Interpretation Project, and I visited that site. Uh, I did not climb the tower at the top, I will say. That is is just too high. Uh, I did go up the Oak Ridge uh, tower, that's a little more reasonable. And for the first time was able to understand how Gettysburg College's athletic fields infringed upon the the historic railroad cut. Uh, I'd never quite realized there was really two different railroad cuts there and then got to figure that out. So just a great experience. Really enjoyed it and and highly recommend it to you. Drove home after a week of battlefield uh, touring and talking about the Civil War, and of course, extended the drive by finding a battlefield to visit I hadn't seen before. This time it was Trevilian Station in central Virginia. Not There's quite a bit of preserved land, not a lot of interpretation yet, but uh, it, it's fairly undeveloped, and you can get a sense of what the cavalry engaged in out there. So lots lots to see everywhere in, uh, in hallowed ground in Virginia. Maryland, Pennsylvania. Lots also to hear here at Civil War Talk Radio. This is our last show for the summer. There will be uh, reruns played until we come back in August. And our first uh, show back, or one of our early shows back, will be uh, a new book of Gettysburg photographs in color. That sounds like a Ted Turner sort of colorization fiasco but it's it's really quite an interesting book that uh takes a a new approach to looking at gettysburg photographs and we'll talk about that uh lots more i've got people who i've invited i haven't heard back from who i hope will be on certainly hope to talk to elizabeth varin about her new biography of general longstreet that should be out uh in the coming season lots of good stuff since it's the last show, it's your last opportunity to show your appreciation by for all the guests you've heard uh, by contributing to the Civil War, spend-as-I-wish fund, the Books and Bourbon Fund, the fund of no responsibility, the fund that is not a 501c3, so you can't deduct it on your taxes. If you set up a, a $5 a month continuing donation at uh, www.impedimentsofwar.org uh, well I, I was talking uh, to yet another person who was on last week's show the, uh, the the podcaster in Gettysburg he makes his living with that podcast and so he has all kinds of hidden content you have to pay to hear and, and all kinds of advertisers I, I I've got a day job I don't need to do that here everything is available to everyone but if you are a continuing donor then when the new t-shirts come out in the fall for the 20th anniversary i'll send you an advance email you'll get to get yours first it's the most trivial possible gift but as napoleon said it is with baubles that men are led uh so that's all i can offer uh that and the satisfaction of knowing you're part of the civil war talk radio community and the chance to hear guests like our guest tonight uh Retired U.S. Army Brigadier General Ty Sedgley is a native Southerner. He is a graduate of Washington and Lee University, career Army officer. He served as a history professor and uh, the uh, chair of the history department at West Point. And he wrote the uh, powerful personal book, Robert E. Lee and Me, A Southerner's Reckoning with the Myth of the Lost Cause, it is, uh, I, I can safely say I don't think I've had any guest more frequently recommended to me by Civil War talk radio listeners who've read this book and wanted to hear uh, hear from him, so I'm delighted to say uh, General Sedgley, are you there? Jerry, I'm here. Thank you so
3: much for having me. Well,
1: I, I'm delighted we got to Put this together. You were originally on the schedule uh, a few weeks ago, but you were called to an important duty, speaking at the renaming of Fort Bragg to Fort Liberty. If I'm not mistaken, is that right?
3: Uh, uh, well, no. I actually I was going to, to. Gosh, let me see. I'm trying to think of when we were <laughs> doing that. I, I, I did have. I, I didn't go to the one at Liberty. I did go to the one at Fort Moore. So it, I think That's that was the was. one that was. That's right. It was. Uh, was was Fort Benning after Henry Benning. Um, mm-hmm. And now, uh, you know, someone who never served in the U.S. Army, but did kill U.S. Army soldiers uh, mm. to uh, Hal and Julia Moore, who um, the, the, he was famous for the, in the book and the movie, We Were Soldiers Once and Young. And of Julia course. Moore is the one that it created uh, sort of the casualty notification system that we use today in the Army. The first time we've ever mm. uh, recognized a family, not just a soldier. So it was a great to be there.
1: Well, well, that's, that's a very appropriate name for an American hero like that. Uh, let me start with the the video I referenced in the introduction that you did for Prager University in 2015. I clicked on it today uh, out of curiosity. It's up, you know, above 2.9 million views since it was recorded, and I skimmed sc- through the first, scrolled through the first few pages of comments, and they were universally positive. Was that the reaction that that video got when
3: you made it? Oh, no. And oh, no. <laughs> and, and the other thing is that YouTube has got that many. But back when that was released, Facebook was using a bunch of videos. Uh-huh. So if you count the Facebook and YouTube, it's right at 35 million. There we so go. <laughs> it, it, it It is, it is absolutely crazy. So, no, I got uh, probably 10, 20, 50, 100 to 1. Negative responses. Then the army investigated me for political speech for saying the Civil War was about slavery in my uniform. Uh, the Nation, the the left leaning uh, magazine, said I was a propagandist for the army, and Stars and Stripes said I was too close to another political organization. And my you know superintendent called me in trying to figure out if I was uh, if I was up to, to nefarious things. So, and then I got I got death threats to my West Point email address. So, it took me completely by surprise. That saying something so uh, uh, so true would be so controversial. That really points out
1: the gap between academic history and the popular understanding of history. Uh, certainly in, in 2015, and I would say as far back as, as the late 20th century, you'd be very hard-pressed to find a serious academic historian who would disagree with the, the statement that the Civil War was primarily caused by the issue of slavery. But general public that well you ran into a lot of flack for saying that
3: oh yeah i did and and i you know i i I get these death threats and and what i said was just right down the middle of the plate as far as academic historians are concerned but the idea that i said that that uh, citizens of the southern states were willing to fight and die to preserve a morally repugnant institution just hit many people right between the solar plexus and and uh, the prayer you is a conservative site, so I that's mm-hmm. where that's who it went to. Um, and then at the end of the video, I said that you know, as a soldier, uh, I was proud that 200,000 U.S. Army soldiers were in the same blue uniform I was, including nearly 200,000 uh, African Americans uh, fought to save the United States, destroy chattel slavery, uh, and free four million men, women, and children from human bondage. And that also the idea that the U.S. Army it wasn't the Union Army. It was the U.S. Army. Mm-hmm. Also, um, it, you know, it, it hits people in a different way. So, yeah, I got in a lot of trouble, but it made me realize that, um, I, that I could say this, uh, but I really needed to wait until I got out of the Army to say it again.
1: Well, that, the fact that you were in the Army, uh, as, as you say, you, you recorded the video in uniform, that you had the, the credentials of being a history professor but not at the pointy-head liberal institution, but at West Point, uh, that you were uh, recording not on, again, uh, a, a left-wing website, but on Prager University, which, as you say, is uh, noted for conservative views. Uh, these all, and that you yourself were a Southerner uh, with a, a military career, all these lent, you know, you took, took your
3: argument out of the ordinary, yeah, I think that's true. I think, you know, the credentials, I don't think I realized at the time. I mean, I was flogging the book that we had just put out, The West Point History of the Civil War, and the publicist came and said, with Simon and Schuster, and the publicist said, hey, you know, why don't you do this? And so I looked up a little bit of Prager. You know, they were, I could see they were right in the center, but they, they, at least in the history, it was okay. And I, I recorded it in January or February of 2015, six months before the slaughter of black churchgoers at uh, Mother Emanuel, but it came out a month after that. And so that combination, um, I, and I, again, I was a private person until that happened. And when that happened, I mean, I, it, was, it just floored me because I had no idea it was coming, and which made it all the more just amazing that this thing went viral. I mean, the Army is not designed to have its colonels go viral. I'll tell you that <laughs> right now. <laughs> and so it was no. scary for a little bit. And now you know now bring it on but then i was not ready for the amount of uh, but but again i'm proud of it i think you know again it wasn't anything new i said nothing that wasn't what every single person that teaches american history 101 says but it was different coming from somebody from west point and in uniform the book itself uh, certainly expands on this we're going
1: to talk about that in our next segment we'll take a short break now and come right back we're talking with Ty Sedgley. He's the author of A Southerner's Reckoning with the Myth of the Lost Cause, Robert E. Lee and Me. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk
0: Radio. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. Streaming live, the leader in Internet Talk Radio, VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to ProkopovichG at ecu.edu. That's P R O K O P. O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio.
1: Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking tonight with Ty Sedgley, author of Robert E. Lee and Me, A Southerner's Reckoning with the Myth of the Lost Cause. So, Ty, you obviously didn't publish this book while you were uh, in the Army while you were teaching at West Point, it is very much a, a personal story. What brought you to to the decision to to tell the story this way, rather than write a traditional
3: history about the lost cause, uh, to, to tell it through your own lens? Yeah, well, it's a great question. So I was at West Point, I was chair of the memorialization committee, and we were trying to deal with the effects of uh, the war on terror, and West Point had lost over 100 graduates killed there and we had no central place to put all the names and nor do we have a central place to put all the 1500 plus names who in Lincoln's word gave the last full measure of devotion to the nation from the war of 1812 through Iraq and Afghanistan. So I was chair of this, I said, oh, we have this room in it, this column hall or memorial room, we'll do it in here. And we got the, got the money, we got the design, we got everything together. And then uh, the idea was, should Confederates go in there? And I, I argued because by this time I, I, I knew that I knew the right answer. And I went and gave this. asked me brilliant uh, <laughs> argument saying that they fought uh, to destroy their country. They didn't serve in the U.S. Army. They killed U.S. Army soldiers. They committed treason, and not only. And they fought to for the worst possible reason to create a slave republic. And the building that they were going in was donated by a guy, George Washington Cullum, who was Halleck's chief of staff, um, who said, "I will never forgive those." who uh, forgot the flag to follow false gods, and the law said no unworthy subjects should go in this building, by that it meant Confederates. So I gave the slam dunk argument, and man, I tell you, they wouldn't listen to me. The superintendent at the time said, no, we wanna bring people together, we don't wanna be like the Sunni and the Shia fighting for centuries, which is the worst historical analogy in the history Hmm. of the world. So I lost, I went back to talk to my wife, tail between my legs and said, they wouldn't listen to my brilliant argument. And she said, Ty, did you tell them your story about why this is so important to you, why you're so passionate? i said no i'm a, I'm a historian. I tell other people's stories. I don't tell my own and she said, "Well, if you are ever going to have any success convincing people about this, you've got to do it through your own story. You've got to tell them about yourself. And I went, "Oh my God, you're right." And so when I started to do that that's when I had some success of convincing people about about what I believe you should think about the Confederates. And so when I started doing that and having success convincing people, I knew that was the way I had to go with that book. So
1: in the book, you describe how you were brought up in the South, uh, originally Alexandria, Virginia, which some people would argue is not really part of the South anymore. It's a suburb of of Washington, D.C. now. Um, But it was Southern when you were living
3: there. Yeah, absolutely, and remember that Alexandria used to be part of the District of Columbia, and when it le- it left in 1846 or 47 um, uh, to retrocede back to Virginia to protect the slave trade, there are more um, streets named after Confederates in Alexandria than any other city in the country named in the 1950s and 60s uh, to protest integration, and it was the last outpost of the Bird Machine, Harry Bird. Um, the segregationists uh, from Virginia. So, yeah, it wasn't. But there is still you can go to Alexandria and stand for maximum Confederate, stand on the corner of Beauregard and Quantrell. That's William mm. Quantrell, the, as you know, the uh, um, the, the the murderer of the gorilla, Mass murderer, bushwhacker, the guerrilla, yeah. bushwhacker, right? Or as I call him, war criminal. Um uh, mm-hmm. you know and and it, they have a street still named after him so yeah it is it is that today it's a very diverse community, but when I went there it wasn't in fact I was bused across town from the white elementary school Douglas MacArthur to the segregated black elementary school named Robert E. lee elementary
1: mm. so at that time in in your childhood uh, and you described this in the book you you were uh, this didn't didn't mean anything. Uh, I mean, did, did Robert E. Lee's school full of black children meant Robert E. Lee.
3: Uh, yeah, and he was, he, you know, he grew up a mile from my house, um, and he was the great hero. You know, I, I always talk about the Spinal Tap scale, you know, on a scale, <laughs> the Spinal Tap scale of one to 10, I would have put Lee at an 11. And, you know, even though I was a good, good Episcopalian head acolyte, I, you know, Jesus would have come in at like five or six. So it wasn't just that I thought he was that Lee was good. It was a reverential understanding of him.
1: Well, you encountered that while we're talking about Lee, uh, especially you described your experience at Washington and Lee University. I had a chance to visit there for the first time last year. I was leading a, a history tour uh, in the Shenandoah Valley. And certainly one could see where Lexington, Virginia is, is uh, uh, or had been at one time, a real shrine to the Confederacy, uh, and Washington and Lee. Well, well, it's named for Lee. What talk about the, the Lee presence that you experienced yeah. there.
3: Yeah. Well, I mean, it used to have on the license place for Lexington. It was shrine of the South. So that was on mm. the sort of le- on for that County was shrine of the South and Jackson. So well, Jackson's buried there. So between BMI and Washington and Lee, it, it was, it was a shrine, you know, the Lee chapel was called the, uh, um, uh, the the Westminster Abbey of the Confederacy, and it it's the home of Lee, the Lee recumbent Lee statue, put there in 1883. Jubal Early gave the speech there, um, and and you know he was seen. He, he, literally, you go in the apse of the church. It's a chapel. There's no Christian iconography. Lee is on the on the altar, and when he is on that altar, he is in his Confederate uniform, asleep on the battlefield, not dead, with his hmm. hand on the sword, another hand. Over his heart, ready to rise up to fight for the for his his cause, uh, white supremacy and for the white people of the South. And then outside of that, so I- inside the basement where he's buried, his office untouched since 1870 when he died. It's a reliquary to a saint. Outside, you may have seen this traveler. His horse is buried there. Mm-hmm. He was stuffed for a while. Then his his, his his I'm not stuffed. His bones were were you know put together and in, in the museum for a while. It deteriorated. He's buried there, and people still leave. Uh, apples uh, for Traveler on his ghostly travails and pennies face down so that the hated Lincoln will not be able to see his master uh, and, on the penny. And that so Lincoln will have to kiss Traveler the, the horse's butt. So it was, it was not just, it was, a, you know, and it, we called him St. Bob. And anytime anybody had a problem, they would go in there and sort of pray at the altar of St. Bob, For you know, what would Bob? What would what would Robert E. Lee do? So he was certainly more than just a presence. He was um, he was he was like a god, and there was a chapel there that worshipped him, not some higher being. It's things are a little bit different there
1: now, uh, certainly, but not not entirely. Uh, When I was there last on this road trip uh, on this tour. We stayed at a hotel that had once been called the Robert E. Lee Hotel, that was why the tour company booked it, but the new owners had changed the name to something innocuous, and some of the people on the tour, uh, including the tour operators, were like, oh, too bad they changed it, and I recall thinking, well, maybe they wanted to have an occasional black customer uh, make some money. Uh, Why would you keep that name, knowing that you're, you're not going to get some people ever coming through your front door? Uh, So the the hotel has a different name, and Stonewall Jackson's Cemetery has a different name, but Lee's still there, and and, uh, the pennies were still there. (laughs)
3: <laughs> so so I, I don't know how much change is, is, is. Well, there has been. So, yes, there <laughs> has been an enormous amount. There has been change. So uh, I know the director of institutional history at, at W&L at Washington, Lee's called w <laughs> and and they have been a lot of changes. Many of the buildings have been renamed. Uh, Lee Chapel has been stripped of all its uh, Confederate iconography, uh, and they are putting a wall uh, between the recumbent statue and the inside of that chapel. Uh, I think it will probably still need an exorcism, <laughs> uh, because the lost cause is is sort of in the, I mean, it's in the walls. It's in the DNA of that place. But they are trying. And BMI has done a few things as well. Um, you know, students, cadets, are now, are were supposed to, when they went by Lee Chapel, to salute it. Salute mm. Lee. Um, they're not required to do that anymore. I think many of them probably still do. The, the Stonewall mm-hmm. Jackson statue that was there has been moved but you know they have the new market statue there where with with the remains of some of those uh the Confederate uh, BMI cadets who died there buried on the you know, sort of the parade field there so it it is and 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 now with the current uh, you know the, the BMI has to to, to kind of ride the wave of whatever administration's in Richmond. So it's, a, it's, it's, even more difficult for them. So yeah, this is, it's, mm. and Debbie Nell's still, they, they retained the name. So, you know, it's, it's going to be there and it's going to be an issue for that town, uh, for those two colleges for years to come, I think. So
1: when you were there, you, as you described in your book, you were becoming a, a Southern gentleman. This was a life's goal. And, uh, this all, all made sense. At, as I was reading the book, I kept thinking, at some point, this guy's going to have an epiphany, it, 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 because I know how the story ends. I know your your current <laughs> views, and I, I uh, in my notes for our talk tonight, I said, you know, you got to ask him when did this happen. But of course, you describe in the book. Uh, uh, give, give us an, an outline. When when did you realize maybe this Lee guy is not everything Gone
3: with the Wind says he was? Yeah, well, it happened slow and it happened fast. So the first thing to know is I took my oath of office in that chapel. Um, I took my commission there, uh, surrounded by Confederate flags, and raised my right hand and gave the oath. Many of your listeners have family or may have served themselves, either in the federal Mm -hmm. government or in the military. Congress takes this oath. It's an 1862 oath that when it says enemies foreign and domestic, it's talking about the Confederates. So I took an anti-Confederate oath surrounded by Confederate flags. I went in the Army. I guess it's hard to believe, but that's what the oath we all take is an anti-Confederate oath. So I went in the army and that changed me. So the idea of, of, of serving with black soldiers being had by black, black bosses. Um, and, and, and now it changed me over time that I didn't want to be a Southern gentleman anymore. I wanted to be the best army officer I could. So that's the first thing that changed me. The second thing that changed mm-hmm. me is I married a woman incapable of lying. And when I took her into Lee Chapel for the first time, she said, oh, my God, this is blasphemy. She was raised a Catholic. Get me out of here. So like, I'm not having any of this. So she changed me because she just was incapable of lying. And I grew up in a culture based on lies. And the third thing that changed me is I was at West Point living on Lee Road by Lee Gate in Lee Housing area. And I was, I mean, and, and then, and, and I went by Lee Barracks at the Barracks at West Point is our highest honor. We named after Winfield Scott and MacArthur, Washington, Grant, Sherman, uh, uh, Pershing. And then there's also Lee. And I saw this sign and I went, huh, why are there so many things named after Lee? And I asked, nobody could tell me. I said, well, you know, here's something I could research. I would be interested in that. And what I found was that in the 19th century, there was nobody, nothing was named after them. They were seen as traitors. Duty, honor, country, our famous motto at West Point is anti-Confederate. You can only have duty and honor if you have country with it. So when did all these things come? They started in the 1930s and it was a reaction to integration. So it's not until the 1930s that things are named after Lee, and it happens in the 30s when the first black cadet comes, Benjamin O. Davis Jr., It comes in the 1950s when the Army is forced to integrate and slow rolls it. It comes in the early 70s when minority admission starts. And for some reason, there's something in the 2000s too, I can't really explain that. But but so I was. it ticked me off that things weren't named when we, when I would have thought they would. It was 1870 when we died. No, it's a reaction integration. And that ticked me off so much, Jerry, that that's when I really went in. I was like, holy cow, this guy's a traitor. And I looked up the Constitution, Article 3, Section 3. Treason shall, be, shall only consist of levying war against the United States. And that's when it was like, oh, my gosh. I, and then I just went all in.
1: Well, now the the reaction to what you say, people will, will say, well, Lee had no choice uh, but to go with his native state. Uh, I'm, I'm sure you've heard that uh, mm-hmm. a thousand times. I have.
3: And Bull Loney, and- <laughs> if I may, if I may say you, so, you may. your, <laughs> I may, well, I will say Bull Loney, um, <laughs> because there were eight U.S. Army colonels from Virginia by June of 1861, seven. Remain with the United States. George Thomas being the most famous. Dennis Hart Mahan. Um, uh, uh, there, there's a whole bunch of them. So there's the, and, and the seven remain loyal to the United States. And if you look at all slave state colonels um, at that time in 1861, uh, more than 80% remain with the United States. And again, I don't like to say Union. It's the United States, just like it's the United States Army. So they, mm-hmm. they stay with the United States. And they considered those people traitors. And why did Lee? Well, Lee. Um, took two and a half years of paid administrative leave when, when he should have been in his regiment in Texas when his father-in-law died in 1857. He goes and runs the three plantations, you know, which are really like gulags. I call them enslaved labor farms. And he runs those things for three years. Remember, he had had enslaved uh, servants from the time he, two years after he graduated, they were part of his mother's estate, which he hired out. He was a millionaire in our terms uh, by the Mexican War. So he profited more than any other colonel because of slavery. He believed in slavery. He fought for slavery. He did not have to do this. Many other members of his family, of elite family, stayed with the United States, including his um, his sister and others. So no, he does not get a pass from me. He chose treason to preserve slavery. Now, another,
1: uh, I'll just play uh, devil's advocate here. Sure. You, you also hear people say Oh, but he was—he he freed his slaves, his wife's slaves, or—or or he was uh, supposed to, um, and 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 uh, Elizabeth Brown Pryor was on the show uh, many years before her unfortunate passing, uh, and talked about this. But but give us a short answer.
3: Did he really free the slaves? Uh, no, of his family? I mean you
1: know he did
3: not, and 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 I use a lot of Elizabeth Brown Pryor's work. I mean, what a what an amazing book of uh, reading mm-hmm. the man. Um, and she she found that one he kept. Uh, he, his father-in-law Custis, in 1857, kept kept um, enslaved families together. Lee broke apart all but one. And uh, Custis said he he said it, they had to be free within five years. But many of the enslaved people had thought they had heard him say, "You're going to be free when I die." And Lee went to court to keep them as long as possible and release them only when he is uh, when the court told them to. He was seen as a vicious enslaver and whipped men and women telling the, uh, the, in fact, his local person overseer would not be the whip hand. So they had to bring in somebody, a constable from outside to be the whip hand where Lee ordered, um, them to lay it on well, and then poured brine or salt water on the wounds afterwards. So this is a cruel enslaver and somebody who in 1863 says, um, that we must fight for our social system. We otherwise there'll be pollution Basically, he's saying that they're fearful of black male sexuality that there's going to be some rape of white women, but as we know, it was white men in fact raping enslaved women. in fact, most white men or boys had their first sexual experience with an enslaved woman. that's why to this day most almost all who trace their heritage to the enslaved era have at least twenty percent European DNA because of the ubiquity of slave rape it it's uh I mean, just, just a horrifying
1: system, and uh, the choice of language, as you point out, uh, instead of the, the moonlight magnolia language like plantation, calling it a enslaved labor farm certainly does help people think about it differently.
3: Uh, the yeah, it's the one thing if I could say on that. It's, it's sure, a yes. site of mass. It's a site of mass atrocities. It's a gulag. And uh, the only way to look at this is as the majority of people that live there were under a system that is so evil that, that required mandatory breeding, uh, rape, separation of families, of husband and wife. This is the most evil system possible. And Robert E. Lee chose to fight for this system because he believed in it, because he profited from it.
1: It, it really is, uh, to put in those terms, it's quite horrifying. And of course, today... The the interpretation at many of these these uh, institutions has changed drastically uh, to recognize the presence of the enslaved, but you still have ones that that serve as as wedding venues. And uh, uh, <laughs> I, I saw one of those wedding shows uh, not long ago where the brides compete to put on the most fun wedding, and and one chose to be at a southern. Uh, 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 what they called a plantation. And, and one of the other contestants, who was black, just kept rolling her eyes. Like, you know, how, how can you not see why this is not a good idea? Uh, we'll talk more about this. We're going to take a short break, come back again, talk more with our guest, Ty Sedgley author of Robert E. Lee and Me A Southerner's Reckoning with the Myth of the Lost Cause. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio.
0: Streaming live, the leader in internet talk radio. self-improvement, career advice, and a variety of other topics. Check us out today. You're sure to find something of interest. Voice America Variety. Talk on today's hot topics.
2: Voice America is on LinkedIn. Connect with us today.
0: Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. that's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio.
1: And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking tonight with Ty Sedgley, author of Robert E. Lee and Me, A Southerner's Reckoning with the Myth of the Lost Cause, We've been talking about the, uh, we were talking specifically in the last segment about Robert E. Lee, uh, who, uh, Ty, you, you describe in your book how, uh, what an icon he was for you growing up in the South. Uh, things are named after him. Images of him are, are ubiquitous. Uh, but then in your research as a historian, you, you came to take quite a different view. Let me ask about uh, the other Confederates. uh we started the, the evening talking about U.S. Army fort names, particularly uh, Fort Moore, formerly called Fort Benning. Uh, is the same story true uh, uh, with these U.S. Army fort names as with the the Lee uh, naming at West Point, that it didn't
3: occur right after the Civil War? Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, that they, they were named in World War One and World War Two. And remember, let's use the language again, the South Mm -hmm. in that period, and at my birth, the South was a one-party racial police state. It was an apartheid state. The new Mm -hmm. constitutions had all come into effect, and the the black uh, black people did have the vote during Reconstruction. That was gone by 1890. And so these are a sense of another form of white supremacy that go along with Confederate monuments, lynching, new constitutions um, uh, all of these things create this white supremacist society. And this is another form of that. Remember by this time, the democratic party who were the segregationists in the South were the ones that, uh, that controlled much of the, the house and Senate, because again, they were the only ones could vote. And so these were both the war department, which was a white supremacist in its own right, as well as local congressmen. It means that black people had no choice. And so let me just give you one example of that. Mm-hmm. And that is, um, uh, 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 Gordon, Fort Gordon in Augusta. And um, John Brown Gordon was a, a fine, you know, fine soldier, wounded five times at the Battle of Antietam. But after the war, he was one of the founders of the Ku Klux Klan in Georgia. And he gave a speech to black Charlestonians where he said, um, if you are to demand equality, black people, the 40 million of us white people will exterminate the 4 million of you black people in a race war. And by the way, John Brown Gordon, like Henry Benning, never served in the U.S. Army. So we named these after the enemy. And that, to me, just riled me something fierce to know that we named these after people that killed U.S. Army soldiers for the worst reason possible to create a slave republic. It's My own experience is
1: growing up in the North, and I do recall the first time I drove down I-95 and saw a sign for Fort A.P. Hill, and did kind of a double take because we didn't have those names uh, in Michigan and sh- turned to the passenger and said, like, is Fort Irwin-Rommel around the corner? Um, <laughs> you know, what, what the heck? I thought that growing up in Michigan, the Union, as, as we said in those days, were the good guys. The Confederates were not. Um, but in the South, uh, no, the Confederates remained the good guys through, through much of the 20th century. Uh, let let me push into the, the present a little bit. Um, where do we stand now? Uh, the forts that were named for Confederates, uh, have all
3: of them been renamed? All all the well, this is a good question. So yes and no. Everything that belongs to the Department of Defense, and that includes 1,111 different items uh, to include water towers and street names and everything else will be changed by the 31st of December 2023, uh, by this year, there are a couple that did not fall under the Department of Defense. They were National Guard bases, and one is Camp Beauregard that belongs to the state of Louisiana, and they have talked that they are going to change it. Don't know if they will, but they have said they're going to, and there's another one, Camp Maxey in Texas, that belongs to the state of Texas, and they have no desire uh, to change that, so there will be a few things left over, um, but uh, but anything that we had ability to, will leave, including probably the most controversial, is the Confederate monument in Arlington. I'd be happy to talk about that, but other than that, everything yes. will be gone by this year. Well, l- let's talk about Arlington.
1: Uh, uh, what what
3: that of course was the Lee Homestead at one time. Yes, it was, and then of course became uh, from Montgomery Meggs became the burial place of uh, today four hundred thousand um, American heroes in their family, I, uh, include, and I'm sure many of your listeners have family that are buried there, but mm-hmm. it was also, uh, in the early part of the 20th century, once the South was a racial police state and a one party to get to garner, um, uh, to really to garner favor among the Democrats, sub- segregationists, McKinley said, okay, we're going to bury some Confederates with honors in this one part of the cemetery. And then a little bit later, in 1914, they put up a monument by the by the United Daughters of the Confederacy, the most successful propagandist in American history. I those women were incredibly successful, uh, and it is it is to the Confederates to the Confederates. It's a monument, not a grave marker, and it's in my opinion the cruelest in the country. Uh, it has sort of the Lady of the South on the very top, and it has a frieze around the bay, a bas relief, a frieze around the side to include an overweight enslaved quote unquote Mammy figure with a tear in her eye, taking the baby from her Confederate enslaver, master, to support the war effort. It, it is the, that faithful slave narrative. And there's another body servant on the other side with his head held high, no weapon, because there were no black Confederate soldiers, showing I'm supporting the war too. And then even worse, that there's a part in Latin that says basically this: the lost cause was right, and it pleased the gods, and we'll always be right as white Southerners, and the United States will always be wrong. And for years, through the Obama administration, there were they they the president of the United States put the American flag there, and the Confederate flag still goes there to that. And there are still you can still to this day get VA the VA creates Confederate um, uh, headstones, you know that you can still get through the Veterans Administration. Now I'm not saying that that's the wrong thing, but that statue, that monument in bronze is I think one of the worst in the country, and we we have. Unanimously, and we were bipartisan commission, three Republicans, one Democrat, four retired general officers, unanimously said that has to go. And so they are in the process now of going through, you know, all the historical stuff, um, uh, the laws to make sure they do that the right way. But it, too, will go. I don't know if it'll be this year or next year, but it's going to.
1: I'm I will share my opinion that I'm, I'm confident in the wheels of history turning Uh, as they have been certainly since 2015 and will continue to do so in the long run so that uh, uh, our children's children will look back and go, what were they thinking? Uh, But we're hearing uh, even from candidates in uh, next year's presidential election promises to rename, re-rename some of these uh, forts if they are elected.
3: Uh, We're not out of the woods, are we? No, no, certainly not. And uh, shame on you know. Listen, I'm not a political person. I vote, but I have never been affiliated with a political party. But that is just uh, uh, just horrible that they are doing that. And I should say that the, night, the 2020 National Defense Authorization Act said that nothing new. There will be no new naming of things after Confederates. And that, then the 2021 National Defense Authorization Act created the commission that I was on, so they mm-hmm. can't do it. Now they could call it after somebody other, you know, maybe they they would name it after somebody else that had last name Bragg, but they can't (laughs) name it after a Confederate anymore. So it is just pandering to people that think that this is good. And I I tell you, I think the Army, I've been to a couple of these ceremonies and they are incredibly powerful. When I was, my first duty assignment was Fort Bragg and I went there, nobody ever told me the story of Braxton Bragg. Why not? Who could tell that story? He's miserable. He's a miserable general. He's a miserable human. He's fragged by his own troops in the Mexican War. He bought an enslaved labor farm, a plantation, after he got out of the army. And there's a quote of him sending the youngest of kids to the fields and how pretty they were to see them go out there. So this is not somebody that the, that the United States of America should, would inspire. So remember, there's a difference between commemoration and, mm-hmm. and history. History is what we do, is what the books we write, and we talk about that, we talk about it in class. Commemoration is about who inspires us. It's about our values. And if something doesn't represent the values of America, then we should change it. And that's exactly what we did for the Department of Defense, to ensure that the names that we have there will inspire soldiers, sailors, and airmen and marine into the next century. What about
1: the fact that you've encountered... Many such people, some people are are resistant to evidence. and and that, in some ways, the political dialogue and and i this show doesn't get political uh, and and I don't want to put us there unduly, but we've seen examples on the one hand of of the monument revision movement being carried over into sort of atavistic all monuments are bad. Uh, you know, Colonel Haig, the Wisconsin abolitionist who gave his life to end slavery at Chickamauga then has the statue vandalized because the people doing it said, Oh, it's an old white guy on a pillar. Let's vandalize it. Um, there's no attention to evidence or history there. And, and on the other side of the political spectrum, we've got people saying, well, here's clear evidence. Oh, we're not going to pay attention. We have alternative facts. We'll just make up our own and, and say those over and over. Uh, and, and that'll, that counts as good as real history. Uh, what do we do with people who are just resistant to historical evidence? Yeah, I,
3: well, I, this is, it's a great question. I, I would say that about our commission's work, until mm-hmm. those two political candidates said something, until that time, there had not been one mean word said about the commission or its results from any elected politician at the federal, state, or local level. So this is the first time that they did that. They only did it in North Carolina. And I really don't think it'll continue because it's just not a winning argument. It has changed. So I think the thing about America is, you know, to to quote Winston Churchill, you know, you can count on the Americans to do the right thing after they've exhausted all other options. And I think (laughs) that in this case, it is changing. And I don't, it's a loss. It is truly what they're arguing is loss. You can go, you can't stop people from looking at my video or reading the secession declarations or anything else. And that's why they're, so history is dangerous. History is dangerous because it goes after our myths and our identities. And when somebody challenges those myths, it, the, the reaction can be ferocious. I've certainly seen that. But on the other hand, the facts are the facts. And the, the values of the Confederacy, treason and slavery, are the exact opposite of what we want in the United States of America. I love my country. I spent 36 years in its uniform protecting it. And I will not have anybody tell me, that I'm one, that I'm not a patriot and two, that the Confederates somehow represent the United States of America today. So we can win this argument, and I am committed as much as I can to, to telling that story over and over, because that's what it takes. It takes academics. It's taken us 50 years as academics, but I think mm-hmm. we're fighting and we're winning now.
1: You know, it, it is a continuing battle, and and your commission certainly has done great work. Uh, you know, The example we started with of Fort Moore uh, replacing Fort Benning – uh, I, I saw somebody the other day in an offhand comment say, "Well, I don't call it Fort Moore," and the reply came to him, "You know, Hal Moore is not enough of an American hero for you. Um it, you know, who, it's not as if you put, uh, uh, you know, a cultural figure, but but there's a you know a great American military hero uh,
3: who did fight for his country as opposed to uh, yeah, someone it- who never served." It's to include Julia Moore, his wife. But I, the other thing I would mm-hmm. tell them that is, hey, you know, when I was headed down to, uh, I'm in upstate New York. When I was headed down there, I stopped by Idlewild Airport. Mm-hmm. Said, what? Idlewild Well, yeah, that's what Kennedy <laughs> Airport used to be called. Idlewild. The, the George Washington Bridge used to be called the Hudson Bridge. So George, you know, we change names all the time when they no longer fit what we need. And Mm -hmm. and that's happening again here. This is an inspirational story about the Moors. It represents the Army and the military today. And it's something we Americans can get behind. It's the right thing to do. And it doesn't take a rocket scientist or somebody with huge, you know, it doesn't take that. This is a great story. And now guess what? You could never tell the story of Henry Benning, who never served in the U.S. Army when you went there. Everybody's going to know the story of Hal and Julie Moore. From now until whenever, because it's such an inspirational story.
1: And, and that, and you end your video with that that comment, and you, and in your book as well, that uh, you know all Americans can take pride in the fact that the United States Army did win the Civil War, uh, did end the rebellion. Uh, there is no slave republic on the North American continent. Uh, that it, it does. It's not exclusively a negative story of. Uh, tearing things down or changing them, but but it should be one of pride and uh, uh, patriotism for all of us.
3: Yeah, that's what the U.S. Army is. I mean, this is the United States Army that won that war. They were the boys in blue. You know, the Union wasn't just the Union, it was the U.S. Army. and It's something I'm very proud to have worn that uniform, the same uniform that U.S. Grant, the finest soldier ever to wear U.S. Army blue, the same uniform he wore, the same uniform that George Washington picked.
1: It, it's, it's a great story. Unfortunately, we are out of time tonight. It's the end of our season, listeners, uh, but I'm so pleased to have been able to have this conversation tonight. Uh, we've been talking with Ty Sedgley, author of Robert E. Lee and Me, A Southerner's Reckoning with the Myth of the Lost Cause. Thank you, uh, Ty. It's been an honor having you on Civil War Talk Radio.
3: Thanks, Jerry. Great conversation. I really enjoyed it.
1: And listeners, as always...